Welcome to the WMKT Week in Review. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I wanted to give a disclaimer about today's episode with Lou Kaszewski. Lou is a survivor of the 1996 Mount Everest tragedy that claimed the lives of eight people. I actually recorded this podcast episode a long time ago, back in uh, 2019, and which is a lot longer ago than I think it is. But all the information is still relevant. The show was, Lou was absolutely great. Obviously, I was much younger than I am now. My audio equipment was vastly inferior to what I use today. And you'll hear that several times throughout the, uh, the episode. But Lou's mic was clear and he presented some great topical information about today's society, but also giving his account and how he survived the tragedy on Mount Everest. I really hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show today, everyone. We are here with Lou Kaszewski, part of the 1996 expedition to climb Mount Everest that led to the unfortunate deaths of some of the climbers. He is the author of the book, After the Wind, that details the events of that physical journey, but more importantly, his personal journey that the disaster led him on. He is here with us today to talk about his passion for the outdoors and what he has learned along the trail of his life. So Lou, could you give us like a short background of your life, uh, where you were raised, and uh, kind of like your college background, kind of the early career that you had? Well, I was born in Bay City, Michigan, middle part of Michigan. Um, I spent my entire life in Michigan. Uh, my career, work career, was spent mostly in southern Michigan, but uh, for the last 20 years, I have lived full-time here in northern Michigan. But this wasn't the first time, uh, the last 20 years wasn't the first time I had experience here because when I was in high school in Bay City, Michigan, I became a skier and I loved to ski. And skiing, as you'll see as we talk, will become an important part of who I have come to be later in life. Uh, and my skiing experiences brought me to Northern Michigan in, uh, in, in, when, in my youth. And, and this was even before the chairlifts were here at the ski resorts. And I became uh, a passionate skier, even in high school. Uh, <clears throat> from there, I went on to uh, uh, first to community college, uh, just like you, and uh, then to... Uh, uh, Michigan State University, where I received a, a bachelor's degree in business. And uh, from there, I went on to get uh, my Juris Doctor degree in law from, it was now Michigan State's College of Law. Um, what may be interesting in that regard was that in undergraduate, I had a minor, minor in risk management. Uh, I was fascinated by by the concept of risk, taking risk, evaluating risk, managing risk. And even as a student, uh, that uh, excited me. And I never would have realized that that would become a big part of my life, both uh, professional life and my sport life. Um, then uh, I went on after uh, law school. I. Uh, I actually got an advanced law degree and also became a certified public accountant. And so with the combination of my experiences in um, finance and financial analysis and law, I became uh, 
uh, a lawyer with a major law firm in Detroit, and I spent my career then, my work career, in Detroit area as a corporate lawyer, tax lawyer, specializing in largely uh, venture capital work, financing work, work that all related to uh, risk uh, uh, on behalf of clients, evaluating risk, taking risks, managing those risks. And it was sort of a natural lead to my uh, sports ambitions that developed later in life, um, which were all um, offshoot of my uh, skiing experiences as, uh, as a young man. You know, it's really interesting because a lot of young people don't probably realize that what they're doing today right now is setting themselves up not only for their career, but also for future hobbies, future goals that they maybe not don't even know they want to achieve yet. So how long did you say you lived in northern Michigan for again? I've lived here now full time for the last 20 years. Okay. Uh, until then, and really since, well, I don't know, maybe 40 years, I've had a part-time home here so that I was able to experience uh, skiing in the winter and some of the summer sports uh, in the summer, but as a seasonal recreational place. Uh, but I've lived here now full-time, north of Harbor Springs, uh, on the bluff overlooking Lake Michigan. Very nice. So you said that skiing, and this is the take that I've gotten from you, from our conversations, that skiing was kind of your ultimate passion overall throughout your career. But most people would argue, you know, those especially who've read your book, After the Wind, you're best known for mountain climbing. So what was the first mountain that you climbed and what experiences caused you to want to get into climbing in the first place? Well, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, the experiences that got me into climbing in the first place was really an extension of my skiing uh, passion because from skiing uh, here in North America, I got to ski the big mountains in Europe, which led me to the sport of ski mountaineering. Not a sport that's very well known in North America, but it's very popular in Europe. And that is where you, when specialized gear, you uh, climb up the mountain on skis. This is in uncontrolled terrain. Oh my. And, and then you ski down. So you cross over the mountain ranges through the various passes. A uh, famous route, for example, is called the Haute Route. It runs from Chamonix, France, to Zermatt, Switzerland, 80 miles across the, across the Alps, and you sleep in high mountain huts. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a form of mountain climbing, uh, but on skis. But the goal is to pass through the mountains rather than to climb up the mountains. But that is what led me to climbing, because when we would reach a pass, um, sometimes we would stash our, stash our skis and get out our climbing gear and climb the peak. To be a ski mountaineer, you have to be a bit of a climber already because you have to have the skills to move and, up and, and function in the mountains with ice axe, with ropes, with crampons, avalanche awareness, self-rescue techniques, all of the things that a traditional 
alpine climber would need to know, you also need to know as a ski mountaineer. So the very first mountain <clears throat> I climbed wasn't necessarily as a, as a traditional mountain uh, alpine climber, but as a ski mountaineer, where I climbed Rosenblanc, which was a mountain in the Swiss Alps. And that inspired me, that moment, I'll never forget that moment of climbing to the top and, and, and saying, wow, this is really cool. This isn't just passing through the mountains, through the passes and then down again and up another pass and then down again. This is actually climbing the mountain as the endeavor itself. And from there, I, uh, <clears throat> that inspired me to to pursue mountain climbing. And I went to, uh, and, I, and I did it right. I went to various schools to learn uh, rock climbing, snow climbing, uh, ice climbing, and I climbed then for, so my ski mountaineering uh, skills and ambitions were set aside to become uh, an alpine climber. And what I discovered through the course of both ski mountaineering and alpine climbing was that uh, that was my gift as an athlete. Um, I've had a lot of experiences with sports. I played sports in school. I was a baseball player, basketball, all the traditional sports, but I was never particularly gifted as uh, a skill sport athlete. Uh, good enough to be on the team, but nevertheless not necessarily able to excel. But what I discovered through ski mountaineering and then climbing was that my gift as an athlete was power and endurance. And like so many parts of life, you know, once you discover, it's a matter of self-discovery, you discover your strength, you play to your strength. And that's what I did. That's so I knew I was good at it, and and I could excel at it, and I did it. And I learned even more through the course of that. I learned that it was actually um, quite suited for high altitude climbing, which is a niche part of mountain climbing, where you are climbing at extreme altitudes. But what makes the difference there is you have to have. Oh, the body chemistry that can allow you to endure mountain climbing with, um, at the same time, with very little oxygen to breathe. Sure. And it's like some of the best climbers in the world can't necessarily climb Mount Everest, not because they're not good climbers, but simply because they, their bodies just will not adapt to the higher altitudes. I discovered through the course of climbing some fairly simple mountains at high altitude that that I did have a good body chemistry for that. I adapted very well. I climatized. I was able to perform um, at extreme altitudes. That then led me to high altitude climbing. So I went through the various phases of you know ski mountaineering, uh, uh, snow climbing, ice climbing, traditional rock climbing, all the way to uh, extreme high altitude climbing, all as a matter of evolution over time. So that's very interesting because like the visual that I'm getting is that you're standing on the top of this first peak overlooking the scenery and the landscape and it becomes known to you that this is what you were meant to do, this is something that you love, you enjoy more than anything else. So 
At what point, though, did Everest become your ambition? Because Everest is the pinnacle of mountain climbing. Was that always something you planned on doing, or did you kind of get into that idea as you develop more and more skills throughout your climbing experience? Yeah, no question that Everest is the icon. It is the symbol of uh, highest achievement in, in any endeavor. And it is the highest mountain in the world, and it is uh, the essence of the high Himalaya. And um, Everest, for most of my, well, for I was about 25 years into my climbing career by the time I started to take Everest seriously. I didn't up until then, and I'm now talking the early 1990s. I didn't until then because, well, first of all, I had other things to climb, uh, but by then I climbed the highest mountain in all the other world's continents. Everest was really the only uh, one that I had not climbed in, 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 the, in the continent of Asia. And um, so I started thinking about it. Uh, up until then, I didn't think Everest was a fair risk to take uh, because of the way expeditions were organized and and staffed. Uh, it just uh, didn't have a good history. It didn't appeal to me. Uh, but in the 1990s, early 90s, uh, professional climbers were starting to organize, uh, professionally organize expeditions. They brought, they brought high altitude climbing to another level. And, uh, and really the, the most important focus of a professional climber and really all of us as serious climbers is safety. We're not uh, risk junkies. Uh, we, we calculate our risks very carefully. And, uh, and I didn't think it was a fair risk until the early 90s when it was being organized by professionals. And I uh, was particularly interested in uh, Rob Hall from New Zealand, who was uh, a professional uh, leader and organizer. I had known him for years. We had climbed together on Antarctica, and he was organizing and leading expeditions on Everest, and they were very successful. And But I still wasn't convinced that this was a risk that I wanted to take, because it is an extreme risk. Um, once you climb above what they call 26,000 feet into the death zone, your body is literally dying. So you're not only climbing a mountain, you're dying at the same time. And so you can't spend too much time trying to get to the top. And so, but I, I, in 1995, Rob was leading an expedition on Everest and he made the decision to turn back near the summit. 400 feet below the summit at the area called the South Summit. I was so struck and moved by his decision that I was convinced at the moment that this is my time. This is a man who can lead, make tough decisions under these, under these circumstances to be so close, <clears throat> but yet for safety, make the call to turn back. At that moment, I contacted New Zealand and uh, said if Rob gets another permit in the future for climbing Everest, I'd like to be considered. And one thing led to another, and I became a member of the New Zealand expedition in 1996. 
Um, so it was a process where I didn't think it was fair. Uh, then having uh, experience with my friend Rob leading an expedition, making a tough decision near the top. And I thought then under the right leadership and with the right team, uh, it could be something that could be a fair risk. Uh, I might add as a, as a maybe a footnote here that um, climbers, generally speaking, are very, very skilled and have perfected the uh, art of uh, denial. Um, we are very good at denying uh, the risks that we really face. We, we are, of course, I only know this now looking back at the time you don't know this. Sure. Uh, but in looking back, I can see that uh, even then I was in the, the state of denial about really how truly risky climbing Everest was. And, and you know, you'd always think as a, as a serious climber that, oh, what happened to other people will never happen to me. I'm smarter, I'm faster, I, I know better, I'll never do this, I'll never do that, I'm not vulnerable to these sorts of pressures, uh, that'll never happen to me. Well, as you know from the story, uh, and as we'll probably talk about here later, uh, it can happen to me, and it did happen to me, and so um, even though I thought it was a fair risk to take uh, at the time, um, it was still pretty hairball. Yeah, it certainly does sound like a very interesting situation to be in. And then you said in your book, After the Wind, that if you were to be transported back to 1996, knowing everything that you know now, that you would not make the decision to climb Everest. My, kind of my transition to my next question would be, what would you offer as advice to adrenaline junkies? You see people they go bungee jumping and skydiving. They get into squirrel suits and they jump off cliffs to soar through the air and then presumably safely land on the ground. When should they be able to say no? When is enough enough? And when is the achievement or the goal that they want to reach not worth the risk? Well, this, <clears throat> that is a really, really good question because really the central theme of the tragedy in 1996 was all about when to say no, where to draw the line. Um, <clears throat> the Most people think that mountain climbing is all about the physical um, skills that it takes to climb a mountain, the strength that it takes, the skills that it takes, the perseverance and all of that. They think and they look at climbers that way and they see climbing when you see it in the movies and whatnot, you see it maybe in a fairly glamorous way. But uh, it isn't so glamorous. It's very, there's a lot of hardship involved. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made and in fact uh, the pivotal decision, the light, or the pivotal moment on Everest, um, was when we were near the top, and we had endured the physical rigors of the climb uh, for six weeks just to get there. It isn't a weekend thing. It took us six weeks to get near the top, day by day, struggling, suffering through all the rigors and the hardships of the climb. So. 
it's fair to say that for six weeks it was all about the physical. But then when we were close to the top and things had gone wrong, the nature of the challenge was no longer the physical with the mountain as the opponent. It was all about inner strength to make a decision. And the opponent is yourself. Because at that point, you're struggling to make the right decision. You're struggling with all of the pressures that you face. And both pressures internally, pressures externally. Uh, I know myself uh, that I made two decisions at that moment. The first decision I made through the course of struggling at noon, I, I knew, we all knew we could reach the top. We were 400 feet from the summit. Um, there was no question we could reach the top. But there was also no question at noon it was too late. We were out of time. No question we were past our turnaround time. No question we could not get to the top and get back down to our highest camp at 26,000 feet in daylight. But yet you're that close and you're struggling with that decision whether to say yes or whether to say no. And I remember well, uh, I'm struggling to make the decision and then I see other climbers continue. At that initial moment, I said, I'm going, I'm doing this. They can, I can. And I'm looking back down, I'm seeing how I was influenced by other people in making that decision. You know, one of the worst things in, in when you don't reach the summit, there's only one thing worse: when when you do and when you don't, and they do, and it's sort of the pressures to succeed, sure. the pressures to 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 be in there, and and. But then I made then I as circumstances developed, I was able to get a second chance at that decision, and I made the decision to go down, and and that decision saved my life because if I hadn't made the decision to continue, made the decision to say yes rather than to say no, I'd still be there. I'd still be there on Everest, forever entombed in Everest ice and snow, just like eight other people on that day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in and th and, and addressing your question more specifically now, I, uh, I think that well, I'm going to first make reference to a, 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 the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, where, where uh, the passage says that for everything there is a season. For every, there's a time for everything, uh, a time to live, a time to die, a time to win, a time to lose, a time to um, laugh, a time to be sad, a time to say yes and a time to say no. In all of life, not just in climbing, not just um, in sports, it's all of life. The, there is a time for everything. And sometimes the most important choice in life, the most important decision you make in life is to say no. And you have to say no. In, in all of life, you have to know what you don't know. You have to know what you can't do. You have to know what you won't do. 
And you have to know these things, but we also have to recognize, and I'm going to be the first to admit, how vulnerable you are. No matter how strong you may feel your ambitions are or your values are, I should say, you're still vulnerable to all of the pressures of life. And when you're that close, um, you can see people made different decisions. Um, to physically climb the mountain, you have to bring certain things with you to the mountain. Physical strength, fitness, toughness, skills, perseverance. But to make decisions, what do you have there? You also bring with you who you are because we're all different. We're all individuals. We all have different values, priorities, agendas, responsibilities. And so we're all different and, and all of those things get mixed up into that decision-making process. And so, you know, you have to, you have to know from your experiences and who you are. You know, what's, what I find fascinating about that decision point is it wasn't a question of what I wanted. It was a question of who I wanted to be. Because as you journey through life, you figure out that the true value of your journey is not how far and how high you go and all your list of achievements is really what values your life journey is who you come to be. And I was invited to speak at Ken Winner's class about the, this particular story, but I don't think I would have been invited to speak to the students if I had gone on and lived because of the circumstances of going on would have meant that I would have um, climbed it even though I survived it recklessly, sure. uh, without respect to the sport, without self-respect, through the course of breaking my promises to my teammates, breaking my promises to my wife that I had made before I left. All of those things would have, I would have climbed Everest, but I wouldn't have been a person that I wanted to be. Sure. And and so you have to, in the course of trying to ask the question or answer the question, when to say no in life, um, you have to know who you are and who you want to be. And, and you don't do things at all costs. You don't get things at all costs uh, because uh, uh, they're not worth if they erode the person you want to be. That was very beautifully put. I would I'd just like to go back for a minute, backtrack to when you said that you're about 400 feet from the top and that you knew you could make it to the, the summit, um, but you also knew that you were past your turnaround time. Was that something that some, like the people that went on, did they know that they could make it up to the top, but not make it back? But if or if they turned around, they knew they obviously wouldn't make it to the summit, but they would make it back. Was, or did they think that if they made it to the summit, there was still hope of making it back to um, the, the camp at 26,000 feet? Yeah. When we sat in a circle uh, in the tent before we went to the summit, and we all promised each other, one by one, looking each other in the eyes, 
to stick to the turnaround time. We all knew at that point that the turnaround time was the, was for the safety of not just yourself, but for everyone. Because if you don't adhere to the turnaround time, now you fragment the expedition resources and you put everybody else's life in jeopardy. Um, so we all knew before we went to the summit that we knew there was going to be a storm late in the day. It had stormed every day late in the day. And the turnaround time was calculated to make sure that we would be back at that highest camp in daylight and before that bad weather was likely to occur. Never in history had anybody gone to the summit of Everest from 26,000 feet and survived the night in the open. So you have to be back to high camp in daylight. Okay. So that turnaround time was calculated to be back to high camp in daylight. Now, we also had, so that's, that was a team decision, team decision, but there were also other responsibilities, individual responsibilities. Each individual had the responsibility for his own decision-making on two points that nobody else can, could be involved in. And that is, only you can know your physical reserves. So you have to know, you have to know for sure you can get to the top and get back, no matter where you are on that day, because nobody else can know if you have the physical reserves or not. You have to make that judgment call. And the other, other individual decision you had to make and had responsibility for making was risk tolerance. Only you can know how much risk you're willing to tolerate because the circumstances are never going to be perfect. They're never going to be exactly what you expect. Something is always going to be different, and so you have to be in a position to, to know and make that judgment call as to, okay, I'm exceeding my risk tolerance, I'm going back. Um, so you had the team, the team decision-making, you had individual decision-making. Now, when we reached the, our final ridge, we were on time. Everything looked good. We, I said to myself at that moment, Lou, you are going to the summit of Everest. You actually pulled this off. At 54 years old, it was almost impossible for somebody my age to pull this off. I knew at that point when we came up on the final ridge, we were going to the summit. We all did. Everybody, snow conditions were good, weather was good, everything was good. As we moved up that final ridge, then things went wrong. Uh, some mistakes were made, some serious mistakes were made, and we lost time. Nobody got hurt, but we lost time. And so when we were there at noon, we all knew that our, our, our calculation was to be on the summit at 11, Worst case, noon. Maybe if you really wanted to stretch it, one. Um, but only if things were perfect. But here we are. We're not on the summit at 11. We're still at the south summit at noon. 
and things were not looking good at that point because we had a log jam of people that was going to create an even further loss of time. So any calculation was there was no way you're going to be able to get to the summit and back in daylight. And we were already past the turnaround time at that point. Uh, now, do I know exactly what other people were thinking at that point? No, because you can't really communicate with anyone. The wind, the, the wind, the sound of the wind is unrelenting in terms of the noise. Okay. And uh, so, so you communicate other, other than through verbally. And, but we all knew we could reach the summit because the summit was the distance from home plate to the center field fence, if you want to think of it in baseball sure. terms. And, and so we all knew we could get there, but we all knew also it was too late. We all knew we were past, way past the turnaround time, mm -hmm. but we're that close. Right. We're that close. And here's, so, so the question was, what are you going to do now? Mm -hmm. Go, no go. Um, the, the pressures then are different for every person because remember, everyone's an individual. individual. They all had their own individual circumstances. I mean, to give you an example, the person a few hundred, few feet, not even a hundred feet above me, was Yesko Number from Japan. She was about to set a world's record. She would have been the oldest woman at 47 to climb the summit of Everest. She would have been the only Japanese man or woman to climb the highest mountain on all the world's continents. All of Asia was watching her. Radio, newspapers, magazines, everything. Uh, she was going to be nationally recognized worldwide as a world record holder. Those were the pressures she faced. Now, look at myself. I climb Mount Everest, I come home, and I say, I just climbed Mount Everest. People around here say, yes, did you hear about the Red Wings? Nobody cares. It's not a big deal. I would have been the 11th in history to have climbed the highest mountain on all the world's continents. Mm -hmm. I would have been the 67th American to have climbed the summit of Everest. Sure. But big deal. No big deal. So the pressures were different. The pressures were different. So even though you know the right thing to do, it's not what you want to do. Sure. It's not what you had planned to do. It's not what you had worked so hard to do for six weeks. And it's there. Right. It's almost like you can, you can't literally, but you almost felt like you could throw a stone to the top. Right. So it is right there. And even though you know the right thing to do, right. that's what decision making is all about. That's why this story to me is not a mountain climbing story. Mm -hmm. It's really a story that has much in common with everyday life because everybody faces tough decisions. Everybody faces that struggle of what to do. Everybody faces all those competing pressures that are provoked by that ambition that you're driving for. 
Yeah, that's definitely how I took uh, when I read the book. It was, you know, not many people will get the opportunity to climb Mount Everest, but you made it extremely relatable to, like you said, the everyday pressures on life to make decisions. And I think it was extremely well written. And um, yeah, I greatly enjoyed it. And I think that was a great answer to my question. Thank you very much. So when we come back, we'll talk to Lou about his book and get his unique perspective on the importance of community and the value of the great outdoors right after these messages. I'm Ken Matthews from The Ken Matthews Show, now heard weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 right here on Triple Talk WMKT, Northern Michigan's news talk leader. Imagine a great conversation about what's happening in America and free speech is still allowed. Yes, you'll find it right here. Join me weekdays from 3 to 6 on Triple Talk 102.3 and 103.3 FM, 1270 AM, WMKT. Nobody prepares more tax returns than H&R Block of Kingsley. That's right. At the H&R Block office right here in Kingsley, Michigan, more tax returns are prepared than at any other H&R Block in the world. For the tax professionals trusted by your friends and neighbors, trust H&R Block of Kingsley. From bookkeeping and payroll to taxes and advice, H&R Block of Kingsley, your full-service accountant. Open year-round in Kingsley, Michigan and on the phone at 231-486-5055. Welcome back. We are here again with Lou Kaszewski, a member of the 1996 Everest Expedition, author of the book After the Wind, and most importantly, a member of our community. So Lou, why did you write After the Wind? Uh, was it be- you wanted to tell a story to people, or was it more therapeutic for you? Well, uh, I wrote After the Wind, the book that I titled After the Wind. I didn't have a title when I wrote it. In fact, I didn't even think of it as a book when I wrote it. I called it Pages. And I wrote, my reasons for writing were actually different from my reasons for publishing. Hmm. I wrote originally in 1997 and 1998, right after the events, contemporaneously with the events. I did that for a variety of reasons. First of all, the experience was mixed with a lot of emotions. Um, Watching this unfold as a historic event. It is still regarded as the worst tragedy in Mount Everest history. It is still a worldwide big story. My book was actually even published in China recently. Wow. And um, so my reasons for writing at the time were to make a record of my experience. It was not unlike me to do that because for all of the years and all of the mountains I'd ever climbed, all the adventures that I climbed, I always, when I came back home, I write, I wrote a personal essay that spoke to what experience did I just live? I did that for myself, not for anybody else. It just, it was my personal uh, habit of writing a story about what did I just live. Well, there were a lot of motivations for me to do that in this case also, because now it's a worldwide international story, big story. And, you know, the cover of Life magazine, Newsweek magazine, Time magazine, and it was all over the national, the international media. I wrote it first because of the, it felt like there was fog rolling in uh, to obscure and distort what actually happened because of the, all of the turmoil in the aftermath. 
And because my experience and what I felt was much different from what was being written about and what was being talked about. And I wanted to record for myself what went wrong. But I also wanted to record for myself what went right because I survived. Mm -hmm. And one of the most frequent questions I'd always been asked when I came, came back home was, how is it that you, same place, same time, same events, you live, they die? How is that? How could that possibly happen? Now, when I was asked for that in interviews and whatnot, there was always kind of the soundbite answer, but there was always the deeper answer sure. as to how it is that I survived. And I wrote at that time, in addition to what went wrong, I wrote a highly personal story of what went right. And it was a story that went untold for about 18 years because those pages that I wrote resided in a file cabinet. Mm -hmm. I did not publish them, even though the industry wanted my story because I was the very last near the top to turn back. Um, and I didn't publish it for two reasons. One, one was my friends were dead. Mm -hmm. This was a story about human failure. This was not a story about a storm or any other way of trying to make put a good face on things. Sure. This was all a story about human failure. And I just could not bring myself to be one more voice mm -hmm. uh, talking about human failure, about my friends who were dead. Mm -hmm. That was one reason. Second reason was just intuitively within me, I felt the story had not ended. There was still, there was still a story there that I was still living because I promised my wife to come back home, but what happens is you come back home, you, you take something with you, but you bring back something different. And I brought back with me um, an unending uh, replay of the events, unending images of my friends who died. Mm -hmm. See, I can still see them, even as we're speaking right now. Sure. I can see them there forever entombed in Everest ice and snow. I can see them. They're never going away. And so I, I bring back the, these replay. I bring back the images. I bring back also this quest to understand and to find some meaning. Is there some meaning to this experience? And and so I wrote about that. And, and then I went on to have many after-story experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so I first wrote, I wouldn't call it carthetic or anything. I would, it, it, was, it wasn't, I mean, I wasn't having nightmares or anything. Uh, it was just, it just never ended. And I just, I had hoped by writing that I could Forget about it. Sure. Um, but that didn't quite work. Mm -hmm. I then decided to publish it um, late, many years later when my wife became seriously ill and I became a full-time caregiver for six years. Mm -hmm. 
And during that period of time, I had, and nobody had ever read these pages that I had written. And during that period of time, um, I decided that, and my wife was dying, and I knew that, and I wanted to honor her and to pay tribute to her for her role in my survival. A story that had been virtually untold about how our experience, our loving relationship, was a source of inner strength for me at that critical moment to make the decision that I made to turn back. You know, we talked before about the strengths you need to make decisions, the inner strengths. Well, what are the sources of inner strength? Mm -hmm. Well, there are a variety of sources of inner strength to make the right decisions even when you don't want to. But one of those sources of inner strength is the personal loving relationship that I had with my wife and the promises that I had made to her. And the influence that she had at, the, at that moment. Uh, as you may recall, Nick, there was some uncommon moments that occurred at that critical decision point mm -hmm. that clearly made me feel that, her, that the part of the decision-making process that you find in your heart was really an important one to look to when you make decisions. And so I wanted to honor her and to pay tribute to her in, uh, by publishing the book. And so I took it out of the file cabinet and, and decided then to, to publish it while she was still with me. And when she could read the story, she had never even read what I had written. And so my reasons for publishing were, were, were that, but it was primarily for that reason. But also I found shortly in the process of publishing that there was another reason uh, that, uh, that it was important for me to publish, and that was to show that there was some meaning uh, to this experience, for mm -hmm. other people to learn from it, to learn what I learned, and to share that learning, to share that experience with other people so that they could see um, what this story really has to say mm -hmm. about everyday life. And so, so I wrote the pages, but then the pages 18 years later became uh, a book that was then published and it's still a popular book today, world, read worldwide, even in China. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as I feel about it today, when I see the book here in the library mm -hmm. <clears throat> and on the bookshelves of uh, people in their homes and in schools, uh, I see it uh, as um, a portrait of my, akin to a portrait of my wife, Sandy, uh, hanging on a wall. Sure. That's the way I see it, the way I embrace it. And she is no longer with me today, but uh, it's very riching and rewarding for me to know that other people are benefiting from her legacy, mm -hmm. her role, her influence on me and saving my life. And you know, Nick, you know, the 
two most important times of your life are first the time you're born and then secondly the time you understand why you were born mm. and and I understood after publishing that book finally uh, my purpose and why I was born and and it was to <clears throat> is to honor her to pay tribute to her to care for her and to tell the the world the untold story of of uh, the role and the value and the importance of a personal relationship and how that can influence people to do the right things in life mm -hmm. to make that decision to say no when that when that decision to say no is important when that's the most important decision then those sources of strength will get you there and that was simply one of them absolutely uh, it certainly is a beautiful tribute to your wife without a doubt so you've been involved in your community by sharing your story. You've given talks at the library, done radio interviews, talked about your book in English classes at the local community college. Why do you feel like it is an important thing for you to do to be involved in a community in that particular way? Well, I, I think it's important because, again, it's not a mountain climbing story, but it's a story that people want to hear because it is a mountain climbing story because the backdrop is mountain climbing and i've had many times i've had experiences where where mothers will come up to me and say oh i wish my son could have heard your story i wish my daughter could have heard your story i wish my husband could have heard your story because it says all of the things that we try to teach our children about everyday life it says all that in a highly a high profile world history, high adventure story. People want to hear the big story about the big events. Right. This historic moment in history is still, still the most historic tragedy in history. And they want to hear it. And it's exciting to hear. People see the images. And so they hear the story. But I also tell it in a way that I, I, I want them to walk out understanding it, that it's not just a mountain climbing story. It is a story about everyday life. It is a story about what you and I and all of us face because choices we make in life will determine the outcome of our life. Mm -hmm. We all know that. And, and, we, and what I try to say to people sometimes is that what I have found through my life, and I'm now 77 years old, is that clearly, looking back, the biggest, hardest, most challenging um, um, thing about making decisions is yourself. The struggle within yourself uh, to make the right decisions and to see what this story says, to see that this story says that don't just follow what others are doing. Mm -hmm. We're all individuals. We all have different roles in life and pieces in life and experiences and values and priorities. Don't just follow what others are doing. Mm -hmm. If I would have just followed others, mm -hmm. I would still be there. Right. So that's an important message. The other important message is to that people get from the story. I don't necessarily tell them one, two, three, four, and five, mm -hmm. but they see it and they feel it that... The other important, another important universal truth from the story is to keep your word. Once you promise, 
once you make a promise, you keep that promise mm -hmm. because there's nothing more important in life to be known as the person who can be trusted. And uh, keeping the promise on the turnaround time meant life or death. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing, too, is looking beyond yourself, the value of looking beyond yourself. I tell the story in a way that when I thought only about myself, me, my goal, my ambition, my gold medal of the sport, my recognition as having climbed all the mountains, the highest mountains, all the world's continents, me, 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 when it was all, when the decision was all about me, mm -hmm. I made the wrong decision. Sure. But when I looked beyond myself to see how my decision affected others, how it, how it would impact others, that was a source of strength to give me, make the right decision. And and but but the other thing in which comes then to the title of the book after the win was the fact that um, what happened to me at the critical moments is when I heard that still small voice of the heart that voice of the heart uh, that spoke to me at that critical moment and, and was the pivotal thing to made me turn back to always listen for that you know you asked me before how is a person supposed to know when to say no? Well, I've just listed some of those for you. Mm -hmm. Don't just follow others. If that means saying no, that means saying no. Mm -hmm. Keep your word. Uh, look beyond yourself. And always listen to that inner voice, that still small voice of the heart. Uh, that inner voice won't let you down. It will tell you the right thing to do when you're under the pressures and all the influences. And the title of the book, After the Win, actually comes from the biblical story on Mount Sinai where um, it's a story about a man, Prophet Elijah, on the summit, or on the mountain, was about to die and the still small voice told them to go back down because they still had purpose to fulfill on earth. And he heard that still small voice after the wind. Uh. That's how this the, my book became known or got the title After the Wind from that biblical story where the still small voice after the wind spoke about the right thing to do. So those sources of strength are sources of inner strength to make the right decisions in life are there in the story to be heard and absorbed. And I know from my experience, even though I don't list them as such, I know from what I receive from people later emails and letters and comments that people are seeing that in the story mm. yes it's a exciting mountain climbing story but it's more importantly a story about everyday life and they're getting that and so that is you know when i said i brought things back with me from everest um you know, the, the the sense of the journey to understand, the journey to find meaning. And you might call, you might call my speaking to others and telling other people's a story, part of my journey for redemption. Uh. 
to do something right from something that was wrong because it was wrong for me to be there uh, under my circumstances because I had a mother with Alzheimer's, I had a brother with special needs, I had a wife, I had two sons, I had a lot of people depending upon me and I was taking these extreme risks on Everest. And I came back with, one of the things that came back with me was the guilt that I felt from having taken those extreme risks in the first place. So now in talking about it and sharing the story and sharing the universal story, truths that are inherent within the story, is in some way a sense of redemption for having done the wrong thing. Absolutely. So we've seen a shift in recent years of not just young people, but people of all ages, um, spending a lot of time on screens, TV, social media on their phones, uh, you name it. I mean, we have th three screens right in front of us right now. It, it's everywhere. So as someone who's experienced basically every aspect of uh, what like the great outdoors has to offer, what would you put as a level of necessity and importance in spending time outside? Uh, that's a great question, Nick, because as I look around me, and this is a phenomenon now in recent years, and I see it and I feel a sense of sadness that uh, I see people are missing so much of life. Now, I know an argument can be made that maybe I'm not as much into it as there should be and sure. whatever. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, life is about experiences. People ask me why I climb. I climb for the experience of it, for the adventure of it, for not just the mountaintop, but for the experience of being in a place, being experiencing people, experiencing different cultures, experiencing... Uh, uh, hardships, different cult in different parts of the world, and all these experiences, I was there. I was can touch them, and and today I don't see that people are driven today to go out to be out and experiencing life in that way, and and there's so much to be learned also just from. From, of course, I'm an outdoor athlete, so I uh, maybe not everybody is, of course, mm -hmm. but uh, <clears throat> I do know that even aside from the athletic aspects of, of being in the outdoors, there's just so much to be learned and so much to be experienced uh, from it and how you take those experiences and value them and profit from them in, in your life. And so I, I am concerned about how looking at the screen all the time mm -hmm. and and also communicating in that way communicating i mean in climbing we communicated in all kinds of ways we couldn't communicate with devices right. we, we had to communicate in other ways and and um and now people are only communicating through devices mm -hmm. and uh, i don't know it's maybe i'm just an old Guy who old-fashioned guy who can't let go of the past, but uh, uh, I think people are missing out mm -hmm. and can can and can profit from just putting it away for a while, just going out and experiencing, even just walking through the streets or walking the beach or whatever. Absolutely, very well put. I agree with you for sure. So, as a final question. You stated in your book, after the wind, uh, there was a possibility of a second book. Have you given that any further thought? Well, 
I'll tell you a little bit of a story that goes along with that. When I wrote the pages, uh, to my horror, later I discovered I had written and wanted to publish the story, I had written 166,000 words. Ah, wow. Now, that's two times the size of a book. A book is usually about 8,000, 80,000 words. Mm -hmm. So I had to cut the book in half, mm -hmm. and the, the pages in half. Sure. And what I had to cut was the after story. There was a remarkable series of events that occurred after Everest, not just on Everest, but after Everest, experiences that that provided me with so much growth, personal growth, and, and enriching experiences. So many things happened, and I wrote about those. Um, but I had to cut it, because I had to cut it down to 80,000 words, and, and it was just, no way I could have. So I, I have 40,000 words or so mm -hmm. 40, that, are, uh, that I have written about the after story. Mm -hmm. And there is interesting things there. Uh, uh, but my priorities at the moment, uh, now there has been a lot of interest shown, in, and, and I think it's going to come up big time now at the 25th anniversary of the tragedy. Ah, yes. It's going to come up. Where are people today? What happened? Mm -hmm. What and that is going to be so. If the timing is good to to uh, bring out uh, a, a story about what happened after mm -hmm. Everest, and and I've, I've and they're really I, I, you don't have time here probably to hear some of these are really exciting stories sure. that were all a product of Everest. So that may happen, but I think the very next thing I'm, I'm working on right now is I'm going to do the Audible edition. Oh, okay. And uh, the market in the book business is the, that's really where the growth is in, in Audible. And I want to do that. And there's also a lot of popularity for uh, life experience stories that are read by the narrator. The narrator is the author. Okay so that I would read the book myself. Oh, very nice. And I don't necessarily have a professional sounding voice, but it is my voice. Right. And people today, for life experience stories, want to hear it from the mm. person who experienced the story. This yeah. is the person who lived this story, and he's telling us this story. So I'm in the process right now of putting together um, what it takes to, to do the Audible. Um, I know it will be successful in the marketplace. It's just a matter of uh, just kind of getting it done. When I, when I do that, and I hope to finish that within the next six months, mm -hmm. uh, I will take another look at whether I can shape the after story into an, another book. Mm -hmm. I'd like to, in a sense, because... I think it says a lot of things people would be interested in hearing. Mm -hmm. But the question is, I don't know if I have the skills to write a story that's the after story without somehow connecting it to the story itself. So I have to try to figure out, is there a way I can... Um, 
maybe republish the first story with the after story or somehow incorporate the, the, the big story into the after story. I haven't quite figured out how to do it because I don't think as a standalone, as a standalone after story, it doesn't, it wouldn't resonate or make sense to somebody without knowing mm. the, the first big story. So I have to, it's just a matter of trying to figure it out and whether I can have the storytelling skills to, uh, to weave the two together. Of what, what went wrong, my personal uh, story of survival, and then what happened after Everest. Yes. Well, I would definitely be more than interested to read that after story for sure. I'm sure many people would be as well. But yes, for those looking for more detailed analysis of Lou's experience with Everest and the lessons that he learned, uh, um, I don't want to spoil the book for you. So he did a tremendous job in sharing his experience in the book, and I certainly don't want to overshadow his effort. So After the Wind can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other book retailers. And I would like to thank Lou for being a guest on the show today. I really appreciate your time and effort you put in to today's show. Uh, so thank you again. And I hope you have great success uh, with your future book endeavors. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.